I am an enthusiastic fan of Bitcoin, and I want to say to everyone here, thank you for what you're doing to drive the Texas economy, to drive the American economy, to modernize energy, to strengthen resiliency of the grid, to enhance economic freedom. Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a bit of a different episode for you. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Texas Blockchain Summit, which was put together by the Texas Blockchain Council. Uh, that was hosted in Austin, and Lee Bratcher asked me to come down to Austin as he wanted me to interview Ted Cruz on stage. And yeah, this is something I was keen to do. Ted Cruz is both a controversial, polarizing, but also influential politician. And with the idea of Bitcoin becoming very divisive and potentially politically polarizing, it's something that concerned me. So I was more than willing to go on stage and do this interview because I had some quite important questions that I wanted to put to Ted Cruz, not only about Bitcoin, but generally speaking, as the world becomes more polarized, I, I did have some other questions I wanted to put to him. Because this is an on-stage interview, this episode is going to be shorter than a normal one. We had about 30 minutes together on stage, but I did say to Lee that I would love to release this on what Bitcoin did. I'd love people to be able to hear this interview. So yes, a big shout out to Lee and his team for firstly inviting me and letting me do the interview, but also for letting me release this on what Bitcoin did. I would love your feedback. I've, I mean, I've already had some feedback. I know some of you aren't fans of Ted Cruz, and you've written to me to let me know and let me know why. And some of you have written to me to let me know why you do like him. I, I get that. I'm I'm indifferent. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to do the interviews and, and speak to the people. And I was glad I got the chance to talk to Ted. I would like to talk to him again. I've got further questions I'd like to put to him. So hopefully that will happen at some point. Right. If you've got any questions about this, you can get in touch. My email address is hello what Bitcoin did, and I will get back to you as soon as possible. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com. 
which is shop.ledger.com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Hello, everyone. Hello, Sir Cruz. Good to see you. Uh, what are you doing at a Bitcoin conference? I'm thrilled to be back. I was here last year, and I'm thrilled to be back for number two. I am an enthusiastic fan of Bitcoin, and I want to say to everyone here, thank you for what you're doing to drive the Texas economy, to drive the American economy, to modernize energy, to strengthen resiliency of the grid, to enhance economic freedom. I I think the men and women here are incredibly important to the future of the state of Texas. You you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from Texas. Um, Sounds like North Texas. (laughs) (laughs) There is a Bedford in Texas. There is. Um, But I come to Texas a lot. I've it's probably my 50th trip here. I love it. The people are great. I, I, I feel always welcome here. But uh, coming from the UK, one of the things I've noticed uh, coming over to the US is that the red team and the blue team don't seem to get on very well. And uh, I hadn't noticed. Yeah, it's just we notice it when uh, we, we come over from the UK. But this is an issue we need you to come together on. This is an issue we don't need you to fight on. We don't need it to be partisan. What can be done about that? Well, listen, it's something I'm worried about because there is a real partisan divide in Washington on Bitcoin and crypto. Um, If you look at the leading skeptics of Bitcoin, they're all from the left. Uh, There is no one more skeptical of Bitcoin and crypto than Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren right now is driving much of the Democrat agenda in Congress. And, And I think there is a very real, a clear and present danger of crippling regulation coming from Washington and doing real damage. And and I've been leading the effort to try to stop that. Uh, But I will tell you, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Gary Gensler at at the SEC, they don't like crypto and they are deeply skeptical. And and that's, I think, really dangerous. Well, I also don't like crypto, but I am a huge fan of Bitcoin. And... um... I've also, I've also noticed this partisan issue, uh, and one of the great things I think you might be here, one of my friends, Jason Meyer, is currently uh, writing a book called The Progressive Case for Bitcoin. 
I think this is the most important book about Bitcoin for conservatives because I think it's a book that can help bridge the divide and help educate progressives on why Bitcoin is important. So, look, I, I hope it works. Um, I will say, you know, and I'll, I'll look forward to reading the book. What we don't have in Washington is any so-called progressives saying that. And, and so that is an issue. And, and it's not by accident. Elizabeth Warren doesn't like Bitcoin for the same reason that communist China doesn't like Bitcoin because they can't control it. It is about power. And, and, and so there is an ideological problem here. The reason I like Bitcoin is because government can't control it. That, that is, and, it, and it's why also I very much want Texas to be an oasis for Bitcoin and crypto more generally. I, I, I think it is a natural place that combines a, a frontier love of freedom an embrace of free enterprise along with abundant and relatively low-cost energy and an environment where this state wants this room in three years to be ten times the size of what it is right now. What, where I was going with that, I was going to ask, we've got a lot of great people in this room. I'm going to assume most of them are probably more on the red team. But uh, what can we do as a community, as uh, people who work in the media, what can we all do to try and help bridge this divide? And I include you in that as someone who can cross the aisle. Yeah, look, I, I will say, you know, my sense of the Bitcoin and crypto community is actually that it is not really on the red team or blue team, that many folks are somewhat apolitical and not really engaged. And I worry sometimes that in the Bitcoin world, there's a sense of utopian, we are inevitable. And so we don't need to worry about government because blockchain will conquer the world and conquer the dollar and be the next standard. And how many people here remember, remember Napster? You know, they thought they were inevitable too until they got crushed. And so there is a very real danger. Look, when China banned Bitcoin, it, it had devastating effects, and, and I do think the community doesn't perceive the magnitude of the threat that is there, and, and there may be a sense of, well, it'll just go elsewhere. You know, how many folks here have your El Salvadorian passports? Um, you know, that th there is a real cost to having to go elsewhere, and I think it'd be tragic to see American politicians drive the Bitcoin community out of the United States. But if you left it up to Elizabeth Warren, if you left it up to Gary Gensler, that's what they would do. And, and I do think that that, in my view, I, I think the Bitcoin community is at a, same, at a similar point to where the tech community in Silicon Valley was 15 years ago, which is at a fork in the road, where I think tech could have gone to the, in the direction of a libertarian, leave me alone, small government, pro-freedom, or they could have done, they chose the road more traveled, of the big government, nanny state, censorship and control approach. I think that has had enormously negative consequences. I view the Bitcoin community in the, in, in the same, at the same fork in the road and trying to decide, I, I hope, Bitcoin chooses the more libertarian, leave us the hell alone, 
uh, and, and let us be free because that, those are the values I believe in and I think those are the values that are also beneficial for, for this incredibly promising and growing industry. Bitcoin's come a long way in the 13 years yeah. since uh, Satoshi released the white paper um, to the point where everybody's heard of it now. You don't go anywhere with anyone having not heard of Bitcoin. Um, you've been very good at outlining the threat of regulation, of it being destroyed, uh, coming from the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Gary Gensler. I'm, I'm still going to push you on this. I'm more interested in saying, how do we stop that? Or how do you stop that? How do your friends stop that? So look, there are very few Democrats who are outspoken on this topic. You've got Debbie Stabenow, who's got legislation that is not crazy. And, you know, there are debates about whether the SEC or the CFTC should regulate and how it should regulate. And I'm, I would characterize myself as still in the listening and learning mode. I have not made a definite decision on that. I, I will say, you say everyone's heard of Bitcoin. Bismarck f famously said there are two things you don't want to see being made, sausage and legislation. Uh, that is powerfully true. You may remember last year, as we were moving uh, the, the infrastructure bill, the Democrats attached an amendment to that bill that, if interpreted broadly, would make almost every person here a broker-dealer, regulated miners, make them broker-dealers, require them to collect information on customers that, in many ways, would be impossible. And, and I stood up on the Senate floor. I objected. I introduced an amendment to strip that out. And one of the points I made on the Senate floor, I said, listen, there, I don't think there are five senators that could tell you what the hell a Bitcoin is. You got to understand the, media, the median age in that body is about 106. And so, you know, one of my colleagues a few years ago referred to the internet as a system of tubes. Um, so the idea, and by the way, when I had my amendment to, to strip it out, the Democrats objected. And so then we even tried, we tried a second amendment that was at least to limit the harm of it. And again, that got blocked. And so my view is, of course, there should be regulation for anything, any major economic endeavor. There needs to be reasonable regulation. But I think government needs to move slowly and carefully. I, I personally am still very much in the process of learning. And I, and I I hope I have the wisdom to know what I don't know. Uh, and so I'm reading books, I'm listening, I'm meeting with people, I'm having dinners, I'm having meetings, I'm, I'm trying to learn more. But I think as we set up the regulatory regime that is going to govern Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, we should think carefully and not come in over-regulating because the danger, the damage that could be done, I think is significant. So you're obviously an advocate of Bitcoin. Uh, Senator Lummis in Wyoming has been a great advocate of Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not aware across the rest of the Republican Party. How is Bitcoin considered? Is it generally warmly received? So it varies. Um, I would say Cynthia and I are the two leading advocates of Bitcoin. Uh, Pat Toomey, uh, who is retiring, so he's on his way out, but he also is interested in the topic. I worked with Pat after my amendment to strip out the Democrats' efforts to regulate Bitcoin. 
I worked with Pat on a kind of middle-of-the-road effort to mitigate it, and Pat was interested in that, but as I said, he's, he's leaving and is being replaced by John Fetterman, who I have no idea what he thinks on it, but I am not encouraged. Uh, my suspicion is he's going to echo Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, I think the rest of Republicans are generally interested in free market ideas, but don't know a whole lot about it. Look, I'm, I'm personally a Bitcoin investor. I have an automatic investment every week. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe in dollar cost averaging. And so, so every week it just automatically I'm buying Bitcoin and, and holding it as part of my portfolio. And so that, you know, and you mentioned a minute ago, I know there's, there's a divide between Bitcoin purists and people more broadly in the crypto world. I personally am agnostic on that divide. Uh, we all start there. Huh? We all start there. That. But I will say this. I'm agnostic on that divide from the perspective of an elected uh, representative. But in my own portfolio, I only invest in Bitcoin. Uh, and part of it is because I don't fully understand the broader world of crypto. And so I don't like to invest in things that I don't understand. Um, that doesn't mean that... that that's the only way to approach it, but that's at least how, how I'm approaching it. I don't think crypto people understand crypto, but uh, I know the principal Bitcoiners understand it very well. And that's very cool to hear your DCA in. Um, it sounds like you're halfway there to being a maxi. <laughs> can, can, can we talk about the opposite of Bitcoin? Can we talk about CBDCs? Yes. We are seeing uh, various trials around the world. Um, our new uh, prime minister, I'm not sure how long we'll have him for, Rishi Sunak is a big fan of them, wants to call it Bitcoin. Um, we know China is a big fan of CBDCs. We've seen tests that are being done here in the US. I think anyone who's a Bitcoiner knows these are a dystopian nightmare, yes. and I know you've yes. spoken up against them. Uh, I see this as the opposite road of Bitcoin. Uh, how do we prevent this uh, control coming? Look, I think it's very dangerous. I've, I've introduced legislation to ban the Fed from introducing a CBDC. That being said, I think the Fed wants to. And I think the Biden White House wants them to. That's a very dangerous scenario. And you say, how can we stop it? If no Democrats are willing to stop it, then Congress can't stop it. Because one of the consequences of this election, Republicans won the House, but with a very narrow majority. And Chuck Schumer is still the Senate Majority Leader. And so I don't see any realistic prospect of a Democratic Senate stopping the Fed from issuing a CBDC. And you, and you got to remember, look, on the Democrat side, one of the great appeals to a CBDC is the, is the reason why most of us hate the idea, which is it gives the government the ability to monitor your financial transactions. We remember in, in Biden's what he called Build Back Better, I call it Build Back Broke, but, but you look at that bill they filed, it included within it a requirement that your bank report to the Treasury Department every financial transaction you make over $600. Now, that means every rent payment, every mortgage payment, in many cases, every car payment. And heck, if it keep, we keep going the direction we're going, it might be every time you fill your tank of gas. I think that's a horrible idea. I don't think the government should be collecting information on every financial transaction you engage in. One of the great attractions 
to collectivists on the left of a CBDC is they want the government to be able to know every single thing you're spending money on. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which, you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Should the government be able to collect any information on financial transactions at any level? Well, look, the existing bank records require, for example, transactions over $10,000 are reported. I think that system has worked. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't, wasn't that started in the 70s when... There was a car was like 10,000. So with inflation, it's not, it's, it's brought in a lot more transactions. It, it certainly has. And, and I think you could have a reasonable argument in terms of whether that amount should be moved. But if it should be moved, it shouldn't be moved down. Um, to be honest, I haven't had an extensive conversation about whether a higher threshold makes sense. Um, I would be open to that conversation, but I'd, I'd, I'd want to hear the pros and cons What I'm adamant on is a $600 threshold doesn't make sense. That sweeps in the vast majority of financial transactions people engage in of any significance. And and, and that, look, I personally am a big believer. When I look at the federal government, 
possessing information. I am adamantly against the federal government spying on law-abiding citizens. I'm adamantly against the federal government uh, violating the Fourth Amendment and engaging in unreasonable searches and seizures. And when I look at the IRS, I think the IRS has been an, an instrument of abuse. I've got a book that just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago that is called Justice Corrupted, How the Left Has Weaponized the Legal System. And there's an entire chapter in it called The IRS Comes Knocking about the IRS under Barack Obama that systematically began targeting people perceived to be as political enemies. And, and the Joe Biden Department of Justice and FBI is, is doing it even worse Personally, what I think we should do, I think we should abolish the IRS. I think we should have a simple flat tax. I might move here if you do that. <laughs> you know, we have no income tax in Texas. Yeah, but you have property tax, right? That, we do. Yes, it kind of swings aroundabouts. We have, we, our, our taxes have gone up in the UK. Um, we saw, I just want to stick on the CBDCs for the moment, yep. we saw in Canada this year the threat to democracy with bank accounts being frozen yes. from uh, what were largely peaceful protests, almost universally peaceful protests. I believe a protest is a fundamental pillar of democracy. That highlights to me what a government can do when they feel under threat. Um, I think... I think anyone who is a Republican would understand that threat, but perhaps people who would vote for the Democrat Party don't fully understand that is a threat to themselves as well. How do you think it would be best to communicate that to Democratic voters? Look, it, it's a good question. Um, one challenge we have right now in our country is that we're so polarized and we're so tribalized that, that the two sides are, are almost living in different universes. Uh, the left listens to left-wing media, the right listens to right-wing media. Uh, we've gotten to the point where if someone disagrees with you politically, you unfriend them. And so you only hear voices that agree with you. And so, you know, you want to try an experiment one night, you know, turn on, turn on the TV and, and watch, uh, you know, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and then watch MSNBC. The shows are so different, they're, they're not, the topics aren't the same, the facts aren't the same. We used to have homogenizing institutions in our country. Things that you would, you would go to church together, you'd go to the Rotary Club together, you would know people, if you were a Democrat, you'd know Republicans, if you were a Republican, you'd know Democrats. It's harder to believe someone who disagrees with you is evil and the devil if your kids are playing together. Uh, where we are, right, I'll take an example, something Texas has faced very directly, which is the crisis at our southern border, that five million people have crossed illegally since Biden became president. It's the worst illegal immigration in the history of our country. If you watch CNN or MSNBC, it doesn't exist. It's simply, they don't report on it. The facts don't exist. The children being physically and sexually assaulted, they don't exist. The, the, the dead bodies abandoned on Texas farms and ranches, they don't exist. And so when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, I, I think there's some portion of the Bitcoin community that I think probably viewed themselves as, as, as Bernie bros. And, and Listen, a lot of folks in Bitcoin are young, and young people often are attracted to ideas on the left. That's, that's been true for time immemorial. I do think some of the folks in the Bitcoin world are discovering, hey, wait a second, these guys that, you know, socialists that sounded, free stuff sounds cool, 
But they're starting, I hope, to understand that people who believe in government control want the government to be able to control you. And so, frankly, it's going to be you. It's going to be the folks here. I mean, if you're someone who leans left, you're not likely to to trust what I have to say. There's such, such a diminishment of trust across the aisle that it's going to take people in the community saying, wait a second, this danger is real. And that means people choosing to vote, to be engaged in politics, to support candidates based on issues and not just are they wearing a red shirt or blue shirt and what's my jersey so I'm, I'm with them and never mind where they are on, on issues that matter to me and my family. Does that not mean it's important for someone like you to then also be crossing the aisle? Here in Texas, we know it's a red state, but here in Austin, there's a, there's a lot of Democrats, Democrats here. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's try, and, let's try and break that trend. What do you think the Democrats do better than the Republicans? So I actually think the strength and weakness of the Democrats in Washington is message discipline. They stand together. They're unified. You look at vote after vote after vote in the Senate, and all the Democrats are together. And I don't know how much of it is that they're afraid of Chuck Schumer. I don't know how much of it is that they just believe in centralized authority, and so they follow orders. But to give you an example, in the last two years, Biden has made judicial nominees, a number of which are really extreme. Not a single Democrat has voted no on a single judicial nominee from Joe Biden. That's a strength of the Democrat Party. It can be very effective in messaging. It's also a weakness. On the Republican side, a strength and weakness is that we are, by and large, individualists. We've got a conference that is wildly divergent. Look, we, in, the, in the Senate, we've, we've got Susan Collins and Rand Paul. They agree on almost nothing, and they can't stand each other. Um, and so on the Republican side, it's a strength to have individualists, but it's also a weakness because it's like herding cats. We're all over the place, and everyone goes and does their own thing. There are a lot of times when I look at the organization, organization and message discipline of the Democratic side, I wish that the Republican side could have a fraction of that. We rarely do. I agree with you, though, also that we need to talk to each other. So, you know, you do a terrific podcast. I do a podcast three times a week. It's called Verdict with Ted Cruz. When we launched it, it became number one on the podcast charts worldwide. We've had over 50 million downloads. We get every week more listeners than CNN's morning show. And I'll tell you, I do the podcast to try to talk through issues and give people actual substance of what's going on behind closed doors, behind the scenes. I think that's valuable. And we have taken the podcast to a number of college campuses where students, you know, will go. We were at Yale University and 700 students come out. I'd say probably a third of them were left of center. And we had 90 minutes of Q&A. And it was... There was disagreement, and it was vigorous, but I was, incre- I was very proud of how it played out, that people weren't screaming and protesting and lighting their hair on fire. And after that, I went and got drinks with a, an Orthodox rabbi who, who works on the, the campus, and he said, 
That was the largest gathering of students he had seen, he said, in 20 years have a respectful, cordial conversation about conservative ideas. I think that's important that we ought to talk to each other and hear what the others have to say. I'm sorry to do this to you. That wasn't really what I, I wasn't really asking about the corridors of DC. I, I meant on policy side. What do you think that uh, the left do better than the right? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Nothing? Look, if you look at where the Democrat Party is right now, there are no moderate Democrats left. And, and it's a weird dynamic. I've been in the Senate 10 years. When I got there, there were differences of opinions among Democrats. There were moderates. What has happened in the last two years is the extremes have been elevated. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and AOC are driving the policy agenda. Look, Joe Biden swore me into office when I was first elected. He was vice president. You know, everyone in the Senate knows Joe. Joe spent most of his career being more in the center. I find it bizarre that the Biden White House has gone hard to the left. Part of it is a reaction to Donald Trump. And look, Donald Trump is a polarizing figure. I am grateful for some of the policy, many of the policy achievements that we had when he was president. But there's no doubt that he drives the left insane and he takes relish in plunging his, his thumb in, in the eye of the left, which I think played a significant catalyzing force in radicalizing the left. Um, I would love to see more willingness to sit down in a bipartisan way and work together. Today's Democrat Party in the Senate is not interested in that. Can we carry on for a couple more minutes? Great. Um, that was great. I think we should get back to the, the important questions. Is it football or soccer? It's football. My guy. Okay. And, and by the way, I was, I was at the Texas-Alabama game this year. What a heartbreaker. That was a safety, damn it. And that means we won. You can look it up later. I know my football. I'm a 49ers fan. Um, okay. A couple more questions before we finish off. What has Bitcoin meant for Texas? I think Bitcoin means investment, it means opportunity, it means prosperity, it means financial independence. Um, I also think the rise of Bitcoin mining in Texas has an enormous positive benefit for resiliency of the grid. That, that, that I think of Bitcoin mining in, in one important respect is essentially like a battery for electricity. As you guys know, storing electricity is incredibly difficult. Our battery technology, we need to go a long way before we could store, store electricity on a, on a large scale. And Bitcoin mining, the beauty of it is when you've got substantial investment as we do in Texas in Bitcoin mining, when you have an extreme weather event, either extreme heat, which is frequent in the state of Texas, or extreme cold, which, which sometimes happens here, Bitcoin mining can be shut off in a fraction of a second, making that electricity immediately available to the grid to, to heat or cool, cool people's homes, to keep businesses running. 
That is an enormous reservoir of excess capacity that I think is very beneficial. I also think the environmental benefits of Bitcoin mining are really significant. You go to West Texas. Out in West Texas, you drill an oil well. When you're producing oil, inevitably you get natural gas coming up as well. And if you happen to have a natural gas pipeline there, that's great. You can sell the, the natural gas and, and use it productively. But many times where a well is, it's not economically profitable to put in a pipeline because it's not enough natural gas to justify that. Um, I'm very excited by the entrepreneurs, some of whom are in this room, that are capturing flared gas. Right now, you go to West Texas, you just see fires lighting the horizon as they're just burning it. Not good for the environment. And with Bitcoin mining, you can capture that, that, that natural gas that was otherwise being flared. You can use it to generate Bitcoin. Um, that ends up helping the environment, number one, and generating value. I also think Bitcoin has real value in helping develop rene renewables, and in particular renewables in more distant places. There are a lot of places on Earth where there's a lot of wind or a lot of sun, but they're not electrical transmission lines. And you can't generate electricity without being able to transmit it and put it on the grid. And what Bitcoin mining allows you to do is if you're setting up windmills or solar panels to immediately generate economic revenue from the first windmill, even without the, the transmission lines to carry it to the grid, which can make it give an economic return to make it profitable to invest in renewable energy sources. So I think there are lots of benefits to Texas. I also think Texas, when it comes to energy, look, people think of Texas as, okay, we're the oil and gas capital of the world. That is certainly true. But Texans aren't just good at drilling holes in the ground. Texans are energy entrepreneurs. And as we have a transition to alternative energy sources, I think Texas will lead the way there as well. And I think there's a natural intersection for energy entrepreneurs and the Bitcoin industry, those two are, are interconnected and, and are a mutual and symbiotic relationship. I think there's no doubt this senator understands Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I think we could have sat here for a couple of hours, but sadly we have to wrap up. Hopefully you and I can chat another time, but uh, Senator Cruz. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. Uh, what did you think of this one? Uh, I still find the idea of politics and Bitcoin a little bit tricky. Uh, and I certainly would hate to see one side of the aisle try and claim Bitcoin and then this becomes something that becomes a partisan issue. And that's why I've been pushing my friend Jason Meyer's book that he's writing, uh, Progressive Case for Bitcoin, forward so much. Because I actually think this is the most important book that's being written about Bitcoin for conservatives, because we don't want this to be an issue that becomes partisan. Uh, we know Bitcoin is for everyone or anyone, depending on who you are. Uh, but we know that Bitcoin is a, should be, a, well, and is a, a political tool. And, you know, the benefits 
are there for anyone, whether you are a progressive or you're a conservative. So I would hate to see one side of the aisle try and claim Bitcoin or use it as a political tool. But at the same time, I feel there is a need to support the Orange Party. It's a tricky one, but something I'm going to be spending a bit more time talking about in the future. Fingers crossed we should have a couple of interviews coming up, which uh, we'll be recording in the new year, which will cover these kind of topics. Okay, if you've got any questions about this, you've got any feedback on the show, you've got any feedback on this interview with Ted Cruz, please do get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And again, just a big shout out to Lee Bratcher, thanking him and his team for inviting me down to Austin to make the show and uh, interview Ted Cruz. And yeah, look forward to hearing from you, whatever the feedback is. Okay, have a great weekend and I will see you all next week.